Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched on a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. The poet who penned these lines nearly 40 years ago is a man in love with Sabbath. He's frustrated by the failure of many faiths to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he remains a deeply spiritual man. He's a 21st century mortal with an ache in his heart. An ache that comes with the realization that the spiritual values of our lives are being crushed. Crushed under the iron heel of technology and progress. The relentless march of all things digital has trampled through the garden of the Lord. And so like the poets of every generation, he, he raises his pen in a call to eloquent defiance. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. His protest stirs some sleeping nerve in us. Somewhere deep inside, we're ashamed that we've given our souls to the many grade givers. We've let the wonder of being human be reduced to the sleek, cool calculations of IBM's Watson. We're ashamed that we've fallen in step with that massive, inhuman machine that marches through the week. It reduces our identities, our thoughts, our dreams, our destinies to tiny bits of information encoded on a microchip. We promise that we will scream if we get even one more form letter or one more upscale catalog addressed to current resident or our friends at 8801 Royal Ridge Lane. We want to be something more than a mail merge coefficient, a simple dot when the high-speed scanner rolls over us a tiny depression on some endlessly climbing corporate graph. I think it's profoundly significant that when Wendell Berry tried to put into words his vision of breaking the hold of the workaday world on our lives, he went to the words of scripture. Indeed, among his many poems and books, there is a large collection 
he calls his Sabbath poems. He borrowed the language of that one book in human history that has consistently affirmed the intrinsic value of human beings and the possibility of spiritual living even in the midst of clattering technology. The letter writers, the poets, the prophets who wrote the sacred words of scripture two and three millennia ago, they realized these same vital truths. To be truly human, to be truly human means to resist the sinful impulse to heap up things, grab at power, revel in that dog-eat-dog world of corporate domination. And in my imagination, I see a grand old man named Isaiah rising from his centuries of sleep to change just two lines in Wendell Berry's poem. So friends, every week, do something that won't compute. Keep a Sabbath. Turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on the holy day of the Lord, call the Sabbath a delight. Honor it, not going your own ways or pursuing your own business or talking idly. Perhaps you've never seen these lines from Isaiah 58 in quite this way before. Maybe every time you've read verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, you saw in them a warning against having anything that looked like fun on Sabbath, a warning against bicycle riding or, or swimming or long, sleepy afternoons in the backyard hammock. Maybe you also have battled the waves of culturally induced guilt if your Sabbath keeping departed in one iota from the traditions you learned in your childhood, which now seem as about a millennium ago. Out of the vault of your Adventist past have come many ideas about keeping God's holy Sabbath that reflected the beliefs and the passions and the experiences of those who raised you or taught you or told you what to believe. And maybe like many in this sanctuary this morning, you've wondered to yourself what kind of a God it is who would seemingly want to ban all human pleasure on the one day of the week in which it seems even remotely possible. When the rat race of the other six days slows down to a delicious crawl. If we were to survey the Spencerville Church this morning, I would guess that this passage in Isaiah 58 has produced more guilt and more confusion than almost any other one we could name. If you've read these verses from Isaiah 58 in that negative way all your life, consider yourself in great company. About 90% of the people who sit with you every Sabbath morning are desperately trying to harmonize pictures of God a picture of a God of of beauty and, and color and light and joy with a God who frowns on human beings enjoying life one day in seven. 
He's a God who is frequently worshiped in airless, soulless places that don't seem anything like that throne room we read about in Revelation. He's a God whom well-intentioned preachers try to tell us we should love. And like those 90%, you've probably been getting very confused in the process. For far too long, we've let that single word, pleasure, in verse 13. Throw us for an unnecessary exegetical loop. Turn back your foot from treading on the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on the holy day of the Lord. For far too long, we have been reading the word pleasure into a line where, all puns intended, the Lord meant business. The Hebrew word, often translated as pleasure, which we typically associate with things that bring us joy, things like flying a kite with the kids or enjoying the flavor of homemade pasta, feeling the sea breeze ruffle your hair. That word is actually better translated in modern versions as business, not pleasure. It's a vital distinction, my friends. It's a vital distinction, and one we recognize in everyday culture around us. Twice in the last two weeks, I have passed through U.S. Customs and Border Control at Newark, New Jersey, returning from India and Argentina, and the immigration officer has asked me the identical question. Were you traveling for business or pleasure? And trust me, after 14 hours on a nonstop flight from Mumbai, the answer is always business. There is no pleasure in it. <laughs> business, I told him, always business. It's a distinction our culture makes, it's a distinction our language makes, and yes, my friends, it's a distinction our Heavenly Father makes. What God asks us to lay aside every Friday afternoon is not that sweet, slow savoring of life in the body for which he created us. That would be to deny the Genesis story that tells us that Adam's first full day as a human being was a marvelously beautiful Sabbath. It was a day on which he experienced nothing but pleasure, including, I might add, the pleasure of Eve and she the pleasure of him. But what God does want us to lay aside every Friday afternoon is that particularly sinful notion that we are self-sustaining, self-sufficient creatures, that we are self-made people who are responsible for the fact that the earth still turns on its axis. In the remarkable words of Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi, on Sabbath, we learn that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. God invites us, as verse 13 says so well, to turn back our foot from the Sabbath, to, to stop that dreadful march toward wealth and power and commercial success 
that dominates the other six days of our lives. Sabbath is God's weekly corrective. It's his corrective to the forces that influence and even control us the other six days. God invites us to realize that the same iron-toed boots that went stomping through the week have no right to tread on the Sabbath. Sabbath? That's a day for bare feet and innocence. It's a day for digging your toes deep in the warm sand. It's a day for watching the seagulls ride the updrafts above the harbor in Annapolis. Turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from all notions of gaining or achieving or getting ahead or staying ahead or even keeping up with the Joneses. If you worship in Sabbath joy, you're far ahead of the Joneses anyway. The Sabbath reminds us at least once a week that we were not put in this world to build up the corporation or even to build up the denomination. We're not here to reap a tidy profit or expand the company portfolio or amass a respectable savings account. We're reminded every Sabbath day we can still go barefoot in the fields of the Lord. Like those kids we usually envy on Sabbath, we've been released by our Father to run in the fields of the Lord. For the earth is still the Lord's, and especially so on Sabbath. Turn back, the Lord urges. Turn back from doing your business on my holy day. Turn back from that destructive notion of material progress and commercial gain that eats out the souls of the unconverted. Turn back from grubbing out your life to earn a shrinking paycheck and too little appreciation from the boss. Turn away from the tyranny of technology. Turn away from the heat of blast furnaces. Turn away from the anger of overheated strategy sessions. Turn away from the cool, impersonal competence of your laptop, your desktop, your tablet, your phone. This week, do something that won't compute. This week, do something that makes no sense in the company ledger. This week, do something that will never show up in the corporation's account of why you should be promoted or get your shot at the corner office. This week, keep a Sabbath. Keep a Sabbath. Hold a Sabbath, embrace a Sabbath, hug a Sabbath to your heart. Yes, your weary, wounded, distracted, discouraged heart. Hold a Sabbath close to your heart. And friends, you'll discover that what Heschel said was true. The world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in a wonderful little essay he called Rhythms of Grace. These are words I like to remind myself of 
every early Friday evening when I put my head down on my pillow. Peterson writes, the Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith, but always grace is previous. Grace is primary. We wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. He writes, I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. I get into the rhythm of salvation. While we sleep, great and marvelous things far beyond our capacities to invent or engineer are in process. The moon in its seasons, the lions roaring for their prey, the earthworms aerating the earth, the stars turning in their courses, the proteins repairing our muscles, our dreaming brains restoring a deeper sanity between the gossip and scheming of our waking hours. We experience this grace with our bodies before we apprehend it with our minds. We are getting our bodies into a Genesis rhythm. That's undoubtedly the nicest thing you have ever heard from an Adventist pulpit about sleeping on Sabbath. Peterson concludes, if God sets apart one day for rest, we can too. There are some things that can be accomplished even by God only in a state of rest. But that's not all, according to our text. Isaiah isn't content with framing truth only in the negative. Call the Sabbath a delight, the Lord says. Call the Sabbath a delight. I can hardly say those words without mentally dropping back about 40 years to a golden Friday afternoon. I was attending Newbold College in England, and on this day, after an hour of scrubbing toilets and showers in the men's bathroom on my wing, I decided that I deserved something in compensation. So I jumped on a slow bus to go to the Evensong Vespers at Windsor Castle's St. George's Chapel. For the royal watchers among us, yes, that's where Meghan and Harry got married earlier this year. St. George's Chapel, above all of the sanctuaries I have ever visited, seems to me to almost be the, the anteroom of heaven. When you're there at Evensong, all of the sound and the rubble and the chaos of the world outside is shut away. Well, I got on the bus, and after swallowing my heart from the second deck that was traveling on the wrong side of the road, of course, we finally arrived, I kissed the ground, and made my way toward the chapel. But there, there I discovered that 
the Evensong Choir of Men and Boys was out on strike. The worship of God had been canceled that day while labor and management negotiated. Reflecting on this episode in the years since then, I think it's probably the only time in my life I have ever thanked God for labor unions. Well, I had almost two hours on my hand, and I wandered down beneath the big old royal castle down to the River Thames. I stopped to watch quiet old Englishmen silently lawn bowling as they puffed on their pipes. Finally, just before sunset, I found myself at the river's edge, watching the wind play in the willows, watching the rowboats bob in their own shadows, listening to the mallards scrambling for scraps of bread on the river walk, watching the young cattle on the other bank browse the grass in leisurely Friday afternoon fashion. I was there when Sabbath came. I was caught up in a magical moment of being, delighted by the absolute fullness and the serenity of everything I saw and felt. I was, in the words of Robert Louis Stevenson, feeling cool and slack and clean and idle. And I think I have never entered into a Sabbath more in tune with my Lord, more ready to call this day of his a delight, a fullness, an opportunity. And in the years since then, I have tried to fill my Sabbaths with delightful things. For 37 years, fresh flowers every Friday afternoon from the market an occasional candle on Friday night, attempts at poetry that I will never show to you, music that restores my soul, good friends, good food. I've reminded myself that newly washed cotton sheets feel delicious on Friday night. And on those rare occasions, when I can wake up without the alarm on Sabbath morning, I think I have a foretaste of heaven even before I leave my bed. I've reminded myself that I can learn more of the ways of God from pine needles and stone walls and long afternoon walks with friends than from any number of stimulating lectures on the theological or organizational problems of the church that go round and round on YouTube and Facebook. I've reminded myself that Sabbath is a day for building better friendships, for building a better marriage, for sharing it with the woman I have been sharing Sabbaths with for 37 years, with my sons and their wives, and yes, with my amazing little grandson, Henry. Call the Sabbath a delight. Honor it, the Lord urges. Call the Sabbath a delight. 
Friends, hear me clearly. In order to call the Sabbath a delight, it must actually be a delight. God wants none of the lying, hypocritical talk that calls his Sabbath a delight when in reality it is a dreadful bore to us. It's not only a semantic challenge for many Adventists and Sabbath keepers to call the Sabbath a delight, it's an ethical challenge as well. Many who claim to celebrate Sabbath, well, they look at it much like they look at the primordial chaos of Genesis 1. You know, it has no form, it has no shape, darkness is over the face of the deep, it's a cluster of avoidances instead of something full of joy. In order to honestly and joyfully witness to the delight of the Sabbath, we need to fill it with the choicest prizes of our week. With a new hymn, we've just learned how to sing with that old friend we've just rediscovered, with that long walk that goes wonderfully to nowhere, with that quiet, unhurried meal with the family that we just couldn't find time to do during the week. Yes, call the Sabbath a delight but first, you must make it a delight, honoring it with your best thoughts, your highest creativity, all the things that bring both you and God joy. So my friends, pay attention to the world, world that, that God has created and pay attention to the act of worship with special awareness on Sabbath. Listen well to the postlude of the Spencerville organ. Let your soul soar with the choir to the throne room of the universe. Feel the warmth of the embrace of that friend who asks you in the foyer, how are you doing? And actually wants to know. Even if the sermon loses you on Sabbath, God will find you on this day. Call the Sabbath a delight. Make it a delight. Lord of the Sabbath next reminds us that this is supremely not a day to go our own way. Honor the Sabbath, the Lord says, not going your own ways. And here we enter the redemptive and corporate nature of the Sabbath. Isaiah has already given us a vivid picture in Isaiah 53 of what happens when we do go our own way. You know these words, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going our own way is a synonym in the Old Testament for following personal sinful inclination. And the chroniclers and the prophets and the poets are all very clear where going our own way leads to. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Sabbath is a day when we consciously try to avoid our habitual direction toward selfishness and isolation. It's a day we seek out fellowship to correct our own impulses toward secrecy and sinning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. 
The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. By seeking and finding fellowship with the Lord and with other Sabbath keepers on Sabbath, God intends that Christians flourish, that we find fullness in a community of faith where we find love and support and encouragement and, yes, sometimes constructive criticism. Those of us who work with people and their problems all week long, uh, we're sometimes tempted to spend our Sabbaths away from all of that, you know, long walks around Centennial Lake or going down Skyline Drive. But God knows that part of what we need each Sabbath is precisely this corporate time of worship with other believers to draw us out of our self-centered and narcissistic spirituality. The presence of faithful people keeps me from becoming faithless. The witness of loving people keeps me from becoming loveless. The obedience of believers who walk in the way of the Lord keeps me from following my own way. It's for my good that God brings me into his presence and the presence of other believers on Sabbath so that I won't go my own destructive ways. And let me tell you, friends, the moments on Sabbath in this congregation that are often the most restorative to me are when a friend lays his hand on my shoulder in the foyer and prays for me. Or I get to embrace someone who I know is struggling with private pain. But even that's not all, according to verse 13. On the Sabbath, the Lord tells us we're to refrain from talking idly, from using words cheaply. The Jewish rabbis remind us that the seventh day was the one day on which God did not speak anything into existence. Even God's words rested on the Sabbath day. And though not even the most legalistic of the rabbis entirely prohibited speaking on Sabbath, they urged that words be used with care and sensitivity, that our tongues find a Sabbath rest as well. That's difficult to hear in the subculture of Adventism, for Sabbath is usually the wordiest day of the week. If you don't believe me, come to any camp meeting weekend that I'm invited to speak at. Friday night begins with an absolute word-a-thon. The first sermons on Sabbath morning begin at 6.30 a.m. when even the birds aren't singing, never mind the angels. <laughs> Sabbath school is a crackle of commentary on Romans or Leviticus and videos about mission, and then comes the pièce de résistance. The two and a half hour worship service in which by count, there are only 43 seconds of complete silence. An ordination service starts at two o'clock. They have me on to preach at three. And just in case you haven't filled up your quota of words, you can come back and do it all over again at 7.30. How much more appropriate is this counsel about not speaking idly? in an age in which we are assaulted literally every moment 
with words. Sean Hannity and Anderson Cooper crackle over the airwaves every night with different perspectives on looming budget deficits. Blasphemous cable comics slide through leering suggestive words while searching for a laugh. We welcome in the name of music lyrics filled with a barrage of profanity and vulgarity that might make even devils blush. From the first words of the Weather Channel precipitation forecast in the morning to the last sleepy good night we say to our spouse at midnight, our world is filled with throwaway words. Sabbath, by definition, is a day to collect words, to refine words, to use words creatively. Sabbath is a day to try your hand at poetry, if only to prove your fourth grade teacher wrong. Sabbath is a day to study the great inspired words of scripture, to let our minds meander through the fields of God's grace and love. Sabbath is a day to think before we speak, and then, on second thought, to decide that maybe the world doesn't need our words after all. Sabbath is a day to treasure silence. The silence that is often more eloquent than words, and, and yet here I am overselling the value of silence with words. What will come of all of this living? What will come of refusing to stomp through the Sabbath? What will come of leaving off our desperate drive to get ahead and gather things together? What will come of making the Sabbath a delight, calling the Sabbath a delight, a day in which fine words and fine silences are cherished? Simply this. The Lord tells us, you will take delight in the Lord. He will make you ride on the heights of the earth. You will find because of your living and loving a Sabbath that the preciousness of the Sabbath God is something you cannot live without. The Sabbath will become your airway, your, your lifeline into an atmosphere that you hope to breathe not just one day in seven, but forever and forever and forever. You will find in the words of that teenage girl, Ellen White, who fell in love with the Sabbath that, yes, Jesus is your sweetest friend. You, yes, even you, will truly hunger and thirst after the righteousness with which he fed your father Jacob. You will delight to spend moments with your Savior for Sabbath, Sabbath is the divine cement that holds our bond with God secure. So friends, this week, do something that won't compute. Keep a Sabbath. Hold a Sabbath. Relish a Sabbath. Celebrate this Sabbath. Never let its richness go. And stay in grace. <laughs>